fulfillment of all that was promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. But now these believers were in danger of giving up their newfound faith to turn away from Jesus Christ and to go back to the temple in Jerusalem and to go back to uh, the sacrifice of the animals by the priest at the temple as if Jesus was not the Messiah as if the Savior of sinners had not come into the world and atonement had not finally been made for sin and all this epistle to the Hebrews is a persuasive argument to encourage the people to hold fast to the precious faith uh, that they had been given and to reject the temptation that was upon them and to, to resist uh, the uh, pressures that they felt to go back and conform themselves uh, to uh, their family and to the environment in which they lived and the environment out of which they had come. And part of the argument of this epistle is found in the verses of our text. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And the point you see is this. The writer is, is exhorting them, you have to look beyond the circle in which you have been brought up. You have to look beyond the things that you are accustomed to in this world. You can't identify yourself with the society in which you live. You can't conform yourself to the world in its unbelief and its rejection of Christ. You have to understand that you have a different calling, a calling to be identified with a different people, with a different kingdom, with another world. It is as if you are here in this present world, but you are a stranger here. You're only passing through. You're a pilgrim in this place. And we all know, think about it for a moment, there's so many structures and institutions in this present world and it's so easy to just blend in to merge with the familiar surroundings and become like everyone else around us and of course the problem is that when there is unbelief and there's rebellion against God when there's depravity and wickedness whether it's in the most overt kind of immorality or whether it's the pride of the human heart that is indifferent to seeking the honor of God and becoming submissive to all that the scriptures say the world round about us will not be in submission to God, His Word, His will, and His glory. And that was true about the whole pattern in the temple, in the work of the priest, in the, the sacrifice of the animals, after Jesus had come, and yet the priest 
rejected the fulfillment of all that they were enacting in this symbolic manner, then their whole worship and system of belief and practice became an apostasy and a rejection of God because the very thing that was pictured in the things that they were carrying on in the temple, they were now rejecting. They were clinging to, to, the, to, the, to the picture, but they were rejecting the reality that it is spoken about. They were like little girls who, when they're little, it's fine for them to play with dolls. But it's so strange when the little girl has become a grown woman and she's not interested in caring for her family, but instead she wants to play with the little dolls. There's something twisted. There's something strange there. And so it is spiritually here with these people. They did not want the Messiah. They really wanted to trust in their own righteousness and not be dependent upon the Savior for salvation. And there is so much in the structure and in the institutions of this present world and of our own native American society, this place where we were born and this place that we love, yet there is so much that is woven into the warp and woof of our land and of our society that is not pleasing to God. And we cannot simply merge and blend in. We have to stand out. We have to be different. We have here no continuing city. And even in those particular generations, past history, and we look back at them and we say, oh, there was so much that was delightful that was experienced then when, when the gospel came in great power. And when the Holy Spirit brought the conversion of multitudes, thousands and thousands of people, and many of the forms and institutions of society expressed in some way the true religion and the fear of God, yet even in such blessed times as that, it will remain true that there will be much in the forms and institutions of society that will express simply the pride of the human heart and man's attachment to fame to worldly honor, to wealth and possessions, in which men are so absorbed and distracted by the affairs of this present life that they do not give their souls in the service of Christ. So the Apostle says, Here have we no continuing city what the apostle is saying is there's so much about this present world that's an illusion what are the things that are most real in your in your in your experience what are the things that are most powerful in your heart and in your affection it's so easy or the things that we hear on the radio or see on the television 
or that we experience when we go in the store and we're dealing with people, or the people uh, in in our office who have such and such values, and this is the way they treat people, and this is the way they approach business, and these are the ways that they express their, their, their aspirations in life. And those can be the most real things to us, the things that seem closest to us and bear down upon our spirits with greatest power. And, and they, they are continually upon our spirits. But it must not be so. It must be Jesus Christ who is most real to us. It must be the Word of God. It must be the Kingdom of Heaven that is most real to us. And how is it that the things that are invisible and not seen by us will become the most real thing in our experience? There's only one way. And that is when the Holy Spirit gives us discernment of the reality of these things and presses them upon our spirits. And then, when those things are more real to us than the things we see and, and feel and deal with in our interaction with other people around us, then, then we, will, we will frame our, our desires. We will make our decisions in life based upon those things. The kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ and His salvation. They will have captivated our hearts. They will be the ruling affection in our spirits. There is so much in this present world that seems real, but what an illusion. People talk about fame. There are struggles for political power. There are struggles to capture a part of some particular commercial market. These things seem so important. They seem to be, for a moment, the things that are most significant. What an illusion. How quickly it all evaporates. There was a time that we used vinyl photogra- uh, vinyl records to play music. Now, we don't do that anymore. We use CDs. They're things that become obsolete. One time we used typewriters. Now we use word processors. And the typewriter sits unused somewhere in a closet, maybe an occasional situation in which we can we can use it again but for the most part it's left obsolete the teaching of the word of god is this whole form and fashion of the present world is soon to be obsolete it's going to be left behind it's not what's most important So the writer exhorts us, we are to pursue a city that is to come, one that is in the future, one that is somewhere else than this present earth. For here, 
have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. I remember how in Hebrews chapter 11 we have, and we read there, the account of the faith of the various patriarchs. And the common thread through it all is that they believed in things that were not seen, things that were not visible, things they didn't have in the hand, things that were not yet in possession. But they hoped for these things. They believed that one day they would have them. But they didn't have them now. And they made all the great decisions of their life based on the expectation that one day these things would be in possession. And that's what faith is. Faith is when God has told us something and we believe it. We don't have it in possession. We can't see it. But because it's revealed to us by God in His Word, then we make it the foundation for our whole life. And we spend ourselves for those things that we cannot see. We give ourselves and all that we are and all that we have for those things that we cannot see. We are pursuing a city to come. We consider ourselves to be citizens, not of this present world, but of the world to come. But you know, it's just when we live as citizens of a world to come that we are the most blessing to other people in this present evil world. It's not that we don't have families and we invest ourselves in our families. And it's not that we don't have uh, precious uh, structures and institutions of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ given in Scripture. It's not that we don't have a marriage that is given to us and children to raise. Of course, we, in, we invest enormous amounts of time and energy and, and expend our thoughts and give our affections in these relationships. But it's with a view to something beyond this present world. God has given us to a spouse in marriage, especially for the spiritual nurture and for the eternal well-being of that spouse. And likewise for our children. And likewise in all the calling that God has given us in this world. He's given us a calling in some profession. Some occupation or trade in this world. It's not without meaning and, and importance. But it's all relative. It's all with a view to something that goes beyond. Abraham is the image of it. He's called to leave his father's land and go out to a place and he doesn't know where he's going. But God says he has a land that Abraham and his descendants will live in. And he goes out wandering up and down. Finally the Lord indicates to him where that land is as he's entered into it. This is where your descendants will have possession. And, and yet Abraham 
doesn't have possession himself in his own lifetime. All that he does is he buys a cave to bury his dead. But it's there a purchase of land in that in that in that territory where God has said that his descendants will dwell. And he buys that little portion of the land in in believing expectation of something much more yet to come. So it is with us. What a lovely thing to have roots somewhere. But spiritually, the Lord has called us to live with a certain detachment. It's not that we don't love our country. It's not that we don't love our communities and pray for our community. It's not that we don't cherish our family connections. And yet, all of these things we use with a certain detachment because there is something that we're looking at on the other side and beyond and more significantly than these present things as the Apostle Paul puts it in these, his first epistle to the Corinthians and in the seventh chapter and in verse 29 but this I say brethren the time is short it remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none and they that weep as though they wept not and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not and they that buy as though they possess not and they that use this world is not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. Dearly beloved, rejoice when the Lord sends the trial and the testing of your faith. It is to bring forth patience and to teach you endurance and godliness. Be prepared to be tossed about in this present life. God has different ways with different people to pursue such things. But don't be disconcerted when you're uprooted. Don't be disconcerted when things seem insecure and unstable in many respects in your life and in experience in your experience. And remember that you're not building a city, a kingdom here. You're pursuing a city to come. Now the writer relates this to the Lord Jesus Christ and sets Christ before us as one who has gone in a certain pattern and that pattern applies to his people also. You see in Hebrews 13 and verses 11 and 12, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without or outside the gate. 
Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Now the reference is back into the Old Testament and to the arrangement by which when the children of Israel had left Egypt and were on their way to the land of promise, they would camp on their journey. And when they camped, there was a, uh, uh, there was a map that God had given, as it were, for how the camp was to be arranged. And the tabernacle, the place where God was worshipped, and the place where God made His presence known, the place where the glory cloud of His presence descended, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was placed, and the golden cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat. That that tabernacle that represented the presence of God among His people, it was put in the very center of the camp. And then in in a prescribed arrangement and order, all the tribes were circled around the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the very center of the camp. And when the Lord went with His people and the day of March was ended, then the cry of Moses was, Lord, return to Thy rest amongst the many thousands of Israel. The idea was that at the end of the march, there the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, would, would be in the very middle of the people of God. And this meant that God was present with His people to give His blessing and favor by allowing them to approach to Him. And if a person were unclean ceremonially, they were excluded from the camp for a period of time. They must wash themselves before they could enter in to the holiness of this camp where God dwelt among His people. And then there was the, the, the arrangement with the scapegoat. There was to be the confession of the sins of the people upon the head of the goat. And then the goat was to take, as it were, the responsibility and the blame for the guilt of the sins of Israel and was carried out far from the camp and released into the wilderness and would perish there in the wilderness far away from the presence of God. And there are animals whose bodies are burned outside the camp because they are, un- they are made unclean carrying the the, the guilt and responsibility, the blame and fault of the sins of Israel that were symbolically laid upon the animals and then the animals killed instead of the people of God. So the camp is the clean place. Outside the camp, it is all unclean. But you remember what happened in Exodus 33. It all got more complicated because the children of Israel had made the golden calf. They had worshipped a, 
this, this image in defiance of the will of God. And Aaron said, Israel, here are the gods that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Here is where your confidence and trust is to be. And God's anger against the sin of the people was reflected in Moses' anger. He threw down the Ten Commandments and broke the tables of stone. Ground up the golden calf and put it in the water and made the people drink of it. And then we read in Exodus 33 that the tabernacle was taken out of the camp. It went outside the camp. And Moses went out of the camp to meet with God at the tabernacle. Because now, through the sin of the people, the camp was unclean. God's presence had left. And that's what happened in the death of Christ. Christ became like the scapegoat. Christ came, became like, the, like the, the animals whose bodies were burned outside the camp. The unclean things. And Christ was made the unclean thing. How, you say, can Jesus, the Son of God, be made the unclean thing? Because the responsibility and guilt and blame for the sins of His people was was laid upon His head. And when these things were laid upon the head of the Savior, the Savior became the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He became the sin-bearer. He became the curse. He was made sin for us. He was made a curse. The uncleanness was placed upon Him. And He suffered outside the holy city away from the temple. But then you see, it's what this writer is talking about. Then the Jewish people rejected the Lord. They would not have the Messiah. They would not put their trust in the the sin bearer, in the true offering that had been made for sin. And so Jerusalem became the unclean place. And it became then that, the, that the, the people of God could not remain in the unbelieving world, however sanctimonious, however religious it might make itself to be. And the people of God had to leave certain forms and structures. They couldn't merge their identity anymore in this place of unbelief and uncleanness. And they had then to go outside. And he speaks about verse 13 how the people must, as Jesus did, so also themselves go outside the camp bearing his reproach. And just as this unbelieving world looks at the Lord Jesus and reproaches him, And will not honor Him. And is uncomfortable with those who love Him. And speak of Him. And stand up for His name and glory. 
So they will be unhappy with those who take such a stand. And they will reproach the people of God. And what this passage calls upon us to do is to identify ourselves with the Lord Jesus in this present life. Here, where we have no continuing city, we stand out as strangers. We don't quite fit in. It may be our family has lived in the same community for 200 years. But if we love the Lord Jesus and bear some of His reproach, there still is something about us that doesn't fit in and that stands out and points this present perishing world to look beyond its own values and its own thoughts to their need of the Lord Jesus and His saving grace and the life that is to be found only in Him. And the call of the Gospel is, first of all, to those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. You see something of what is involved in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ? means coming to Him as the sin-bearer means coming and freely making confession of your own guilt and of the filthiness and foulness of who you are in your, your wickedness and your disobedience to God, your love of moral darkness and your inability to serve God and submit yourself to the law and commandments of God. And you come and make confession of that. Acknowledge your own bankruptcy before God. And you cry out to Him, not concerning what you've performed or what you're able to do or what you intend to do or what you resolve to do, but you come to Him as a beggar and you come to Him as naked and you come to Him as blind and you come to Him and you say, I don't have anything. Everything I need is in Jesus Christ. I need the eternal Son of God as my sin-bearer and as He who will wash me and make me clean. And then coming to Him, you also come counting the cost. And you understand that if you come to Christ and He makes you clean, it's going to be very disruptive to your life. When the Lord Jesus steps into the boat, then the, the waves begin to rise and the wind begins howling because there are difficulties that come. Because we're no longer at home in this world. And there is a cleavage of heart between the true believer and this present world with its fallen values, its unrenewed ways, its love of darkness. So you won't be at home in this world any longer. And you're going to have to make at critical points throughout your life a choice and a decision. And it's going to come to very particular and specific situations in which you're going to have to set your back on things that before were important to you. 
and things that other people expect you to do. And you can't be what they expect you to be. And you can't live the way they want you to live because you have a different identity. You don't belong in Egypt. You don't belong in Babylon. You belong to Christ. And you count the cost knowing that when you ask Christ to cleanse your heart, that this is what you're undertaking. And the call to seek a city to come goes out, of course, also to those who are already walking with Christ and maybe walking with Him many years. And dear friends, Dear brothers and sisters, are you are you growing in the knowledge of Christ? Is there more and more of the Scriptures that is coming to you as it's never come before? And you're seeing things in the Scriptures you never saw before because the Holy Spirit is teaching you because you love the truth of Christ And you want to know Christ. And you want to be made like Him. And you want the glory and holiness of Christ to be reflected in you. And then just as you're learning things from Scripture, those things are requiring things of you that you've never considered before. And you have to keep changing And you can't settle down in a rut. And you can't be the same person you were three years ago. Your life is being revolutionized because the Spirit is taking His sword, the Word of God, and He's piercing down into your soul. And He's uncovering the sins there. And He's teaching you to make certain distinctions. And He's taking away your love and delight of things that used to be so important to you. And now you love other things. He's setting your heart on other things. He's bringing you into relationships with people you didn't know before. Other relations are fading away because there's this revolutionary work that keeps going on in your life because Christ is your shepherd and He's leading you in paths of righteousness. He's leading you. There's always a development. There's a growth. And the call goes forth to you to pursue a city to come, to be ready to change, to be ready to put things behind you, to be ready to take steps into ground you've never walked on before as you become more like Christ and more obedient to His will. And less and less do you blend in with this present evil world. You're ready to bear the reproach of Christ. You're ready to be a scandal to others. You're ready to take abuse. You're ready to get scowls. You're ready to suffer financially. You're ready to see if need be relationships lost favor lost because 
you love the Lord Jesus. And you love sinners lost all around you. And you have compassion for souls. And above all, you're zealous for the honor and the glory of God. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Do you think, do you consider what it means to go forth unto him, to go to Christ? You don't go out on your own as a disciple. You don't go out on your own as a pilgrim. You go unto Christ. You go to Christ in His sustaining grace. You go to the Christ who showed mercy to you and forgave your sins and gave you righteousness that He provided for you. You go to Christ who pours out His Spirit upon you. You go to Christ who promised that He will not leave you comfortless or orphans, but He will come to you and He will be with you and He will abide with you forever. And then, when you go to Christ and you're growing in the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the fellowship of the world doesn't seem so precious. Then you wonder, why was it that I spent my years in following those things when I could have the fellowship of Christ? And when we come to heaven and eternal glory and we look upon the face of the Savior then surely we shall say, Why did I not live to His glory? Why did I not seek the city that was to come more than I ever did? If only I had known the glory of my Savior and His love and mercy and compassion towards me, I would have sought Him and gone forth to Him and not remained so much a part of this present (coughs) evil age. Amen. The Lord bless His Word. Let us rise and pray. Lord, we give thanks to Thee for the Gospel of Jesus Christ and for the Savior of sinners. Thank Thee, O gracious God, for the work of the Lord Jesus, the only Savior. And pray, draw us to Him and grant to us grace to seek Him with all our heart. We ask this in His name. Amen.